Section 12 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Morning 1, Part 2. One summer day, when it was very hot, and he had drunk copiously and argued in the marketplace, he went home and began to work quietly in his garden. He loved digging. Bareheaded under the sun, still irritated by his argument, he dug angrily. Jean Christophe was sitting in the arbor with a book in his hand, but he was not reading. He was dreaming and listening to the cheeping of the crickets and mechanically following his grandfather's movements. The old man's back was towards him. He was bending and plucking out weeds. Suddenly Jean Christophe saw him rise, beat against the air with his arms, and fall heavily with his face to the ground. For a moment he wanted to laugh. Then he saw that the old man did not stir. He called to him, ran to him, and shook him with all his strength. Fear seized him. He knelt, and with his two hands tried to raise the great head from the ground. It was so heavy, and he trembled so that he could hardly move it. But when he saw the eyes turned up, white and bloody, he was frozen with horror, and with a shrill cry let the head fall. He got up in terror, ran away and out of the place. He cried and wept. A man passing by stopped the boy. Jean Christophe could not speak, but he pointed to the house. The man went in, and Jean Christophe followed him. Others had heard his cries, and they came from the neighboring houses. Soon the garden was full of people. They trampled the flowers and bent down over the old man. They cried aloud. Two or three men lifted him up. Jean Christophe stayed by the gate, turned to the wall, and hid his face in his hands. He was afraid to look, but he could not help himself and when they passed him he saw through his fingers the old man's huge body, limp and flabby. One arm dragged along the ground, the head, leaning against the knee of one of the men carrying the body, bobbed at every step, and the face was scarred, covered with mud, bleeding, the mouth was open, and the eyes were fearful. He howled again and took to flight. He ran as though something were after him and never stopped until he reached home. He burst into the kitchen with frightful cries. Louisa was cleaning vegetables. He hurled himself at her and hugged her desperately, imploring her help. His face was distorted with his sobs. He could hardly speak. But at the first word she understood. She went white, let the things fall from her hands, and without a word rushed from the house. Jean Christophe was left alone, crouching against a cupboard. He went on weeping. His brothers were playing. He could not make out quite what had happened. He did not think of his grandfather. He was thinking only of the dreadful sights he had just seen. And he was in terror, lest he should be made to return to see them again. And as it turned out in the evening, when the other children, tired of doing every sort of mischief in the house, were beginning to feel wearied and hungry, Louisa rushed in again, took them by the hand, and led them to their grandfather's house. She walked very fast. 
and Ernest and Rodolphe tried to complain as usual, but Louisa bade them be silent in such a tone of voice that they held their peace. An instinctive fear seized them, and when they entered the house they began to weep. It was not yet night. The last hours of the sunset cast strange lights over the inside of the house, on the door-handle, on the mirror, on the violin hung on the wall in the chief room, which was half in darkness. But in the old man's room a candle was alight, and the flickering flame, vying with the livid dying day, made the heavy darkness of the room more oppressive. Melchior was sitting near the window, loudly weeping. The doctor, leaning over the bed, hid from sight what was lying there. Jean-Christophe's heart beat so that it was like to break. Louisa made the children kneel at the foot of the bed. Jean-Christophe stole a glance. He expected something so terrifying after what he had seen in the afternoon that at the first glimpse he was almost comforted. His grandfather lay motionless and seemed to be asleep. For a moment the child believed that the old man was better and that all was at an end. But when he heard his heavy breathing, when, as he looked closer, he saw the swollen face on which the wound that he had come by in the fall had made a broad scar, when he understood that here was a man at point of death, he began to tremble. And while he repeated Louise's prayer for the restoration of his grandfather, in his heart he prayed that if the old man could not get well, he might be already dead. He was terrified at the prospect of what was going to happen. The old man had not been conscious since the moment of his fall. He only returned to consciousness for a moment, enough to learn his condition, and that was lamentable. The priest was there and recited the last prayers over him. They raised the old man on his pillow. He opened his eyes slowly, and they seemed no longer to obey his will. He breathed noisily, and with unseeing eyes looked at the faces and the lights, and suddenly he opened his mouth. A nameless terror showed on his features. But then, he gasped, but I am going to die. The awful sound of his voice pierced Jean-Christophe's heart. Never, never was it to fade from his memory. The old man said no more. He moaned like a little child. The stupor took him once more, but his breathing became more and more difficult. He groaned. He fidgeted with his hands. He seemed to struggle against the mortal sleep. In his semi-consciousness he cried once, Mother! Oh, the biting impression that it made, this mumbling of the old man, calling in anguish on his mother, as Jean-Christophe would himself have done his mother, of whom he was never known to talk in life, to whom he now turned instinctively the last futile refuge in the last terror. Then he seemed to be comforted for a moment. He had once more a flicker of consciousness. His heavy eyes, the pupils of which seemed to move aimlessly, met those of the boy frozen in his fear. They lit up. The old man tried to smile and speak, Louisa took Jean-Christophe and led him to the bedside. Jean-Michel moved his lips and tried to caress his head with his hand, but then he fell back into his torpor. 
It was the end. They sent the children into the next room, but they had too much to do to worry about them, and Jean-Christophe, under the attraction of the horror of it, peeped through the half-open door at the tragic face on the pillow, the man strangled by the firm clutch that had him by the neck, the face which grew ever more hollow as he watched, the sinking of the creature into the void, which seemed to suck it down like a pump, and the horrible death-rattle, the mechanical breathing, like a bubble of air bursting on the surface of waters, the last efforts of the body, which strives to live when the soul is no longer. Then the head fell on one side on the pillow. All, all was silence. A few moments later, in the midst of the sobs and prayers and the confusion caused by the death, Louisa saw the child, pale, wide-eyed, with gaping mouth, clutching convulsively at the handle of the door. She ran to him. He had a seizure in her arms. She carried him away. He lost consciousness. He woke up to find himself in his bed. He howled in terror because he had been left alone for a moment, had another seizure, and fainted again. For the rest of the night and the next day he was in a fever. Finally he grew calm, and on the next night fell into a deep sleep, which lasted until the middle of the following day. He felt that someone was walking in his room, that his mother was leaning over his bed and kissing him. He thought he heard the sweet, distant sound of bells, but he would not stir. He was in a dream. When he opened his eyes again, his uncle Gottfried was sitting at the foot of his bed. Jean-Christophe was worn out and could remember nothing. Then his memory returned, and he began to weep. Gottfried got up and kissed him. "'Well, my boy? Well?' he said gently. "'Oh, uncle! Uncle!' sobbed the boy, clinging to him. "'Cry, then,' said Gottfried. "'Cry!' He also was weeping. When he was a little comforted, Jean-Christophe dried his eyes and looked at Gottfried. Gottfried understood that he wanted to ask something. "'No,' he said, putting a finger to his lips. "'You must not talk. It is good to cry, bad to talk.' The boy insisted. "'It is no good.' Only one thing, only one. What? Jean-Christophe hesitated. Oh, uncle, he asked, where is he now? Gottfried answered, he is with the Lord, my boy. But that was not what Jean-Christophe had asked. No, you do not understand. Where is he? He himself. He meant the body. He went on in a trembling voice. Is he still in the house? They buried the good man this morning, said Gottfried. Did you not hear the bells? Jean-Christophe was comforted. Then, when he thought that he would never see his beloved grandfather again, he wept once more, bitterly. Poor little beast, said Gottfried, looking pityingly at the child. Jean-Christophe expected Gottfried to console him. But Godfrey made no attempt to do so, knowing that it was useless. "'Uncle Godfrey,' asked the boy, "'are not you afraid of it, too?' Much did he wish that Godfrey should not have been afraid, and would tell him the secret of it. "'Shh!' he said. 
in a troubled voice. And how is one not to be afraid? He said after a moment. But what can one do? It is so. One must put up with it. Jean-Christophe shook his head in protest. One has to put up with it, my boy, said Gottfried. He ordered it up yonder. One has to love what he has ordered. I hate him, said Jean-Christophe, angrily shaking his fist at the sky. Gottfried fearfully bade him be silent. Jean-Christophe himself was afraid of what he had just said, and he began to pray with Gottfried. But blood boiled, and as he repeated the words of servile humility and resignation, there was in his inmost heart a feeling of passionate revolt and horror of the abominable thing and the monstrous being who had been able to create it. Days passed and nights of rain over the freshly turned earth under which lay the remains of poor old Jean-Michel. At the moment Melchior wept and cried and sobbed much, but the week was not out before Jean-Christophe heard him laughing heartily. When the name of the dead man was pronounced in his presence, his face grew longer, and a lugubrious expression came into it, but in a moment he would begin to talk and gesticulate excitedly. He was sincerely afflicted, but it was impossible for him to remain sad for long. Louisa, passive and resigned, accepted the misfortune, as she accepted everything. She added a prayer to her daily prayers. She went regularly to the cemetery and cared for the grass as if it were part of her household. Gottfried paid touching attention to the little patch of ground where the old man slept. When he came to the neighborhood, he brought a little souvenir, a cross that he had made, or flowers that Jean Michel had loved. He never missed, even if he were only in the town for a few hours, and he did it by stealth. Sometimes Louisa took Jean Christophe with her on her visits to the cemetery. Jean Christophe revolted in disgust against the fat patch of earth clad in its sinister adornment of flowers and trees, and against the heavy scent which mounts to the sun, mingling with the breath of the sonorous cypress. But he dared not confess his disgust, because he condemned it in himself as cowardly and impious. He was very unhappy. His grandfather's death haunted him incessantly, and yet he had long known what death was, and had thought about it and been afraid of it. But he had never before seen it, and he who sees it for the first time learns that he knew nothing, neither of death nor of life. One moment brings everything tottering. Reason is of no avail. You thought you were alive. You thought you had some experience of life. You see, then, that you knew nothing, that you have been living in a veil of illusions spun by your own mind to hide from your eyes the awful countenance of reality. There is no connection between the idea of suffering and the creature who bleeds and suffers. There is no connection between the idea of death and the convulsions of body and soul in combat and in death. Human language, human wisdom, are only a puppet-show of stiff mechanical dolls by the side of the grim charm of reality and the creatures of mind and blood, whose desperate and vain efforts are strained to the fixing of a life which crumbles away with every day. Jean-Christophe thought of death day and night. 
Memories of the last agony pursued him. He heard that horrible breathing. Every night, whatever he might be doing, he saw his grandfather again. All nature was changed. It seemed as though there were an icy vapor drawn over her. Round him, everywhere, whichever way he turned, he felt upon his face the fatal breathing of the blind, all-powerful beast. He felt himself in the grip of that fearful, destructive form, and he felt that there was nothing to be done. But far from crushing him, the thought of it set him aflame with hate and indignation. He was never resigned to it. He butted head down against the impossible. It mattered nothing that he broke his head and was forced to realize that he was not the stronger. He never ceased to revolt against suffering. From that time on, his life was an unceasing struggle against the savagery of a fate which he could not admit. The very misery of his life afforded him relief from the obsession of his thoughts. The ruin of his family, which only Jean-Michel had withheld, proceeded apace when he was removed. With him, the crafts had lost their chief means of support, and misery entered the house. Melchior increased it. Far from working more, he abandoned himself utterly to his vice when he was free of the only force that had held him in check. Almost every night he returned home drunk, and he never brought back his earnings. Besides, he had lost almost all his lessons. One day he had appeared at the house of one of his pupils in a state of complete intoxication, and as a consequence of this scandal, all doors were closed to him. He was only tolerated in the orchestra out of regard for the memory of his father, but Louisa trembled lest he should be dismissed any day after a scene. He had already been threatened with it on several evenings when he had turned up in his place about the end of the performance. Twice or thrice he had forgotten altogether to put in an appearance, and of what was he not capable in those moments of stupid excitement when he was taken with the itch to do and say idiotic things? Had he not taken it into his head one evening to try and play his great violin concerto in the middle of an act of the Valkyrie? They were hard put to it to stop him. Sometimes, too, he would shout with laughter in the middle of a performance at the amusing pictures that were presented on the stage or whirling in his own brain. He was a joy to his colleagues, and they passed over many things because he was so funny. But such indulgence was worse than severity, and Jean Christophe could have died for shame. The boy was now first violin in the orchestra. He sat so that he could watch over his father, and when necessary beseech him, and make him be silent. It was not easy, and the best thing was not to pay any attention to him, for if he did, as soon as the sot felt that eyes were upon him, he would take to making faces or launch out into a speech. Then Jean-Christophe would turn away, trembling with fear lest he should commit some outrageous prank. He would try to be absorbed in his work, but he could not help hearing Melchior's utterances and the laughter of his colleagues. Tears would come into his eyes. The musicians, good fellows that they were, had seen that and were sorry for him. They would hush their laughter and only talk about his father when Jean-Christophe was not by. But Jean Christophe was conscious of their pity. 
He knew that as soon as he had gone their jokes would break out again, and that Melchior was the laughing-stock of the town. He could not stop him, and he was in torment. He used to bring his father home after the play. He would take his arm, put up with his pleasantries, and try to conceal the stumbling in his walk. But he deceived no one, and in spite of all his efforts, it was very rarely that he could succeed in leading Melchior all the way home. At the corner of the street, Melchior would declare that he had an urgent appointment with some friends, and no argument could dissuade him from keeping this engagement. Jean Christophe took care not to insist too much, so as not to expose himself to a scene and paternal imprecations which might attract the neighbors to their windows. All the household money slipped away in this fashion. Melchior was not satisfied with drinking away his earnings. He drank away all that his wife and son so hardly earned. Louisa used to weep, but she dared not resist, since her husband had harshly reminded her that nothing in the house belonged to her, and that he had married her without a sou. Jean Christophe tried to resist. Melchior boxed his ears, treated him like a naughty child, and took the money out of his hands. The boy was twelve or thirteen. He was strong, and was beginning to kick against being beaten but he was still afraid to rebel, and rather than expose himself to fresh humiliations of the kind, he let himself be plundered. The only resource that Louisa and Jean Christophe had was to hide their money. But Melchior was singularly ingenious in discovering their hiding-places when they were not there. End of section 12